0: You can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. We'll start reading at verse 18. Matthew 4, verse 18. And we will read through verse 23. Matthew 4, 18. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, and the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat. And their father and followed him. And Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Here we have Jesus walking up to some men and saying, Follow me. The title of my message this morning is What's a Christian? Recently in our congregation, we've had a number of um, young adults uh, make commitments to follow Jesus. And I found it interesting that as people discussed it and as people prayed for them and people um, offered them as as prayer requests, um, a lot of different terms were used. Things were said like... um, so-and-so gave his life to the Lord, or she made a commitment to Christ, or made a commitment to follow Christ. Um, different people would say, um, he came to the Lord, or she gave her heart to the Lord. And all these different terms made me start wondering, well, what's a Christian anyway? Because some of us would also just say or hear, so-and-so became a Christian. And Well, early Christians didn't call themselves Christians. In Acts 11, it says people in Antioch called believers, followers of Jesus, Christians. And it was likely meant as some kind of an insult. But over time, it's been accepted or adopted by those of us who follow Christ. Christian does not mean little Christ, as we sometimes hear. But it means one who adheres to or belongs to Christ. And if you think about that for a minute, adhere is a glue word. Um, If you buy super glue or um, epoxy or liquid nails, um, construction adhesive, um, you read the label and it will say what it adheres to, what it sticks to. So you can think of adhering as holding on or gripping or bonding. The meaning of the word Christian then, based on the words that were originally used Uh, back there in Greek, by those people in Antioch, is one who holds on to and belongs to Christ. And I don't mind being called that, even if the people who first used it were trying to use it as an insult. I'm willing to wear that badge. I say I don't mind being called that, but there is one little problem. Using the Greek words and, and what it truly means, yeah, I like it. But most people don't actually think that. They think whatever their idea of Christian is. To the world at large, so the the world at large has, has some ideas about what a Christian is. To some people, being a Christian, no, let me say it this way. To some people, a Christian is one who goes to church or mass frequently. To some people, a Christian is one who occasionally goes to church or mass. To some people, a Christian is simply a person who has been baptized. To other people, a Christian is one who has been baptized into the Roman Catholic Church. To others, a Christian is one who has been born in a Christian home or a Christian family. I should use scare quotes when I say that, maybe. To some, a Christian is one who is born in a so-called Christian nation or Christian culture. To some people, a Christian is simply a person who isn't Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, or Buddhist. To others, a Christian is one who tries to make everyone else act like them. Think of your average political Christian activist. But that's none of those describe what a Christian is. And so if none of those is what a Christian is, what is a Christian? Now, if I, if I think of, and that's not an exhaustive list of what people think of as Christian, but to the person, so some people think it's, it's a person who occasionally goes to church or mass, a Christian does appreciate that Christ has made us a part of his body, and a Christian, then we take advantage of our opportunities to get together to worship, to learn, to teach, um, to challenge, to be challenged. While some people think a Christian is simply someone who's been baptized, a Christian is someone who wants to follow God's instruction, wants to publicly share their commitment to following Christ and living for God. To those who who would say a Christian is one who has been baptized into the Roman Catholic church, a Christian knows that baptism is the answer of a good conscience toward God and a public commitment to him, public commitment to his way. And that any so-called baptism that isn't that is just publicly being made wet. To those who say that a Christian is simply someone who is born in a Christian home or a Christian family, a Christian is one who has personally made a commitment. And if they have a Christian family or grew up in a home that had a parent or parents committed to God, they should be grateful for the lessons and helps that God provided through that. But remember, a Christian is one who has made a personal commitment. And if they don't have a Christian family, they didn't grow up in a home that, or have a parent or parents that were committed to God, they should be grateful for the lessons God taught them and the opportunities God provided them through that too. To those who would say a Christian is just one who isn't Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, or Buddhist, a Christian is one who has found Christ not someone who simply hasn't found Muhammad, Buddha, etc. And to those who think of Christians simply as people who try to make everyone else act like them, a true Christian is one who wants everyone to meet who they have met, Jesus, and loves seeing God work in people's lives, but realizes that simply making people behave does nothing to heal their soul or address their deepest need. Those who have come to Jesus for healing do live a new life that they've been given. When I started looking at the usage of the word Christian, I found it interesting that there's a word in Greek that is one letter different than the Greek word for Christian. Christian in the Greek word is one who holds to or belongs to Christ. There's a word that would be Christian um, in English, an E instead of an I. And the word that amounts to crest would be good or moral. So a Christian is one who holds to being good or doing the right thing. But a Christian is one who holds to Jesus. And as I thought about that, I want to use that as a a little bit of a launch pad to, to go into two different ideas. One We don't come to Christ or walk in his way because we want to do the right thing. Um, If your goal is simply doing the right thing, well, the Apostle Paul in Romans um, 7 said, the good that I will to do, I do not do. The evil I will not to do, that I practice. If your goal in life is simply to do the right thing, you will fail. If your goal is simply to be a moral, upstanding person, you're going to fall short of it. Our basic problem isn't that we can't do good or be good. Our basic problem is that we aren't good, that we are sinful. I mentioned earlier that some of us grew up with Christianity in our home and some of us didn't. I want to make it crystal clear if if someone comes to me and we're talking and he says, um, before I committed my life to God, I was in bad shape. You know, I, um, I I don't want to use any family or friends specific examples. Um, you know, I, I drank till I blacked out every evening or I got high every weekend, or I lived with my girlfriend for however many years and I stole stuff from Seven Eleven all the time. And, and I cheated my boss out of stuff on the job site and but God's helped me turn around, and I'm thankful for, um, for his forgiveness. My natural tendency is going to be to think, "Well, wow, that guy, he was really sinful, wasn't he? And then I talk to someone else, and they say, I'm so thankful that God protected me from so much. My parents both served God and showed me a good example. We had worship and Bible reading and prayer together. Uh, we always made it to church. We had a great church with good Sunday school teachers. Um, you know, just a great time in class, good preaching. We had good friends, safe and rewarding activities. Um, I could almost start to feel like, well, God didn't have so much to save that second guy from, did he? You know, that first guy, oh, he's very sinful. But that second fellow, well, um, he... he. uh God kind of saved him from what he could have gotten into, right? Do we actually believe Romans 3.23 or not? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So no matter what you grew up with, what you did yesterday, what you did between the ages of whatever and whatever, all of us share the same problem, that we're sinful people. And we need a Savior. And if you take comfort in the fact that, well, I grew up, you know, and I didn't do this and didn't do this and didn't do this, what good does that really do you? God's not asking, what did you not do? What didn't you do? God's asking, did you follow me? Are you going to follow me? All of us have chosen to do what we wanted when we knew God's desire and plan was for us to do what he wanted. We choose. We chose to do our thing instead of his, all of us. And when someone does that, what does that make them? A sinner. James 2, verse 10 says, whoever shall keep the whole law, yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. I cannot rest on the fact that My mother was committed to following God, and I grew up in a house that didn't have this bad influence or didn't have that bad influence. I'm thankful for those things. But that didn't get me anywhere with God. So first, I want us to remember, to realize, that we came to, we come to Christ, not because we simply want to do what is right, but because we're sinful, we're broken people. Lost people who need his forgiveness. We need his healing. We need his power. We need to be reconciled to God, our creator. Each and every one of us. Not the person sitting next to you. Not that person you talked to yesterday. Not your cousin or brother-in-law that drives you crazy. You. Me. Each one of us. We come to God because we need him. We need to be reconciled to God. Turn over to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. We'll start reading at verse 9. Matthew 9, 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened, as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners, to repentance. So whether you are or were the one who loved smoking pot on the weekend or the one who loved going to Sunday school on the weekend, Jesus is calling you to personally come and follow him. The helpless pit that that second person I described was in was just as deep and inescapable as the first man's pit. Each were in a pit that neither one could get out of, that they needed Jesus to stick the ladder down into. Neither one had any hope of dealing with their sin and separation from God, except that they come to Jesus. The other idea I want to look at from comparing Christians to Christians is the person who holds to Christ has the hope and opportunity to start living a good life, and more and more to do the right thing. Romans 6, 4, Paul said this, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism and to death, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. 2 Corinthians 5 says, For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, If one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who, di- him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who was reconciled himself to us, reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Colossians 3 says this, you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So when you turn your life over to God, when you start following Jesus, you have been given a new life. You You have been given a new life to live, not to put on the shelf and admire. We are new creatures. We we live it. We live that new life. We, Romans 6.4, we walk in newness of life. So yes, it's in our heads. It's in our hearts. But it gets all the way down to our feet. We started this morning in Matthew 4 with Christ calling followers. There's a couple terms that are often used in the Bible, two main terms for what followers of Jesus are called. The first is disciple. The word disciples used in the New Testament uh, both to describe those who follow Jesus and in Matthew 28 Christ's disciples including us are told to go out and make disciples for him everywhere a disciple is one who follows and learns and lives based on what they're following and what they're learning so when Jesus speaks we listen and that makes sense right In Matthew 28, Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus is the one of whom it will be said forever. Worthy is the lamb who was slain, to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. That's from Revelation 5. He's the one about who Paul says this in Philippians 2. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. We follow him as his disciples. We learn of him, and then we live based on what we learn. Followers of Jesus in the Bible are also called saints. In Romans 1, Paul says, To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 1, he says, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. To be sanctified, to be a saint is to be sanctified. And that can sound a little intimidating. None of us like to none of us would want to call ourselves saints. um, But the Bible calls you one. But to be a saint is simply to be sanctified. And to be sanctified is to be set apart and dedicated. So there's there's an aspect of purification, but it is primarily being set apart and being dedicated to God's purpose. And and I want to think about that for a little bit. Um, When I think of something being set apart and dedicated, and Joe can maybe relate to this, I think of the years I spent in the press room at Christian Light, and there was a measuring cup over by the one sink that we used to measure chemicals to put into the water um, under the press. And that, that vessel, this little glass measuring cup, was set apart and dedicated to a certain job. It sat there in its spot. Um, Crystal didn't come down from her house to get it, to take it upstairs and measure out flour when she was going to make cookies. Um, it, was, it was set apart from everything else, and it was dedicated to its job. We didn't use it for other things. We used it for what it was intended. Actually, there was a lot of things down there that were dedicated to, set apart and dedicated. Um, we have been set apart and dedicated to God's purposes. Do we go jumping from thing to thing, or do we stick to the job that He has given us? There are a lot of things we could look at as we consider what being a Christian entails. Um, Christians have the Holy Spirit. First Corinthians three says, well asks the question, Do you not know that you are the temple of God? The Spirit of God dwells in you? We are temples for the Holy Spirit as Christians. Romans eight, also talks about the Spirit, says, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Romans 8 also talks about the Spirit helping in our weakness. Talks about, well, I'll just read the verse, Romans eight twenty six. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. When we can't even figure out how to talk to God, the Spirit is there speaking the deepest truth of our heart to God. And Ephesians 3 says... Now, to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. If the Spirit is living in us, God can do way more than we can even ask for or even have a concept of, even think of. Turn over to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, some very familiar verses. Hopefully this isn't too stream of consciousness, um, but we're thinking about what is a Christian. Christians are born again, Jesus says. Here in John chapter 3, verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless you do, unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, If we are born, okay, so if you're born in the U.S., you have citizenship in the United States. And we are born into a new kingdom, and we are born into a new citizenship. Our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven comes through that new birth. There are no naturalized citizens of heaven. Um, you can't just show up and and uh, get your green card and... Spend your time in heaven. The only way to become a citizen in God's kingdom is through birth, through that new birth. If you were born into the kingdom of God, you are a citizen in his kingdom. I want to read a few passages about Jesus, about salvation, about his work. I don't plan to comment much on the passages. Um, Just think about them. Consider what they say and what it means for you. And we'll close by reading a teaching of Jesus from the book of Luke. Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5. And you don't have to turn to these. Um, I'll, I'll be reading just a few different sections here. Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. I said I wasn't going to make much comment, but on this one I have to. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. I think something we miss a lot is the aspect how do I want to say it? Jesus, you're healing. Here we go. So it says, by his stripes we are healed. Your healing that you get through, through the work of Christ on the cross is not just for your sinfulness. But it says, he, he bore our griefs, he carried our sorrows. A lot of us have, have walked through some, some rough emotional um, times. A lot of us have carried some weight that was, was an emotional burden, a, a uh, well, grief and sorrow. Um, been through, through black times, dark and weighty things. According to these verses, part of Christ's work on the cross was also to take those off of you too. So maybe you can join me and next time we have um, have those weights pushing down on us, those burdens, that uh, discouragement, depression, we can remember that that stuff can go to the cross too. Okay, Ephesians chapter two. All right, I won't make comment that many comments on the rest of them. Ephesians chapter two, verses four and five. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved. He loved. He showed mercy. We were dead in trespasses. We were dead in our sin. He has made us alive with Christ. Colossians. Colossians 1, verse 18. 18 through 23. Colossians 1, 18. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled and the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight if indeed you continue in the faith grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard which was preached to every creature under heaven of which I Paul became a minister the work of Christ Titus chapter 3 Titus chapter 3 and verse 4. Now we'll do verse 3. Titus 3, starting at verse 3 and going through 7. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And we'll close by looking at Matthew, I'm sorry, Luke 14, and a teaching of Jesus there. Luke 14, starting at verse 16 Luke 14:16 and going through verse 33 Jesus speaking then he said to him a certain man gave a great supper and invited many and he sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited come for all things are now ready But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground and I must go see it. I ask you to have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and still there is room. Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper." Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him? saying, This man has began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple." Every time I've heard this passage spoken from, I've heard some variation of the statement, hate here means to love less. When Jesus says, anyone who follows me has to hate or does not and does not hate his mother, father, wife, children, brothers, sisters, his own life also cannot be my disciple. So every time I've heard this preached from or used in a devotional, It's followed up with, well, hate here means love less. The word means hate. Um, If you actually look at the word that Jesus used, he used a strong word. He didn't use a word that says, you know, love as a second tier. He used a word that says detest. So is Jesus teaching us to hate? No. Read the rest of your Bible. It's pretty obvious. The calling of the Christian is to love. We need to read more than just a few verses, but... What was Jesus saying then? I mean he was he was talking he was talking aggressive well, yeah, aggressively. He was speaking um, he was speaking very strongly. But the, the simple the simple lesson that we have to walk away with is Jesus is teaching us that anything that pulls us away from him should be disgusting to us. Even the things that are precious and intended for good, even the things that he has created and meant to be good, if they stand between him and us, they are detestable. And they cannot be allowed to keep us away from him. So no, I love my family. But they can't take a place between me and God. We read a number of verses about what he's done for us this morning. What are we going to do for him? Let's be all in on Jesus. Can we have a song?